sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. Good morning and welcome to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Today we have many guests and we're talking about transparency and accountability in policing here in Richmond, both with the RPD and the VCU police force. So sit back, relax, and be ready to get informed. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Hello, you guys. Welcome to another week of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 Mania. Yes, we've got uh. some special guests this week, and we're excited to have you guys in the studio. We're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Give us some information, background about yourself and the organization that you're here to represent and talk about. I am Liz Costin. I am a faculty member in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University, and I'm also a member of the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. My name is Kim Rolla. I'm an attorney with Legal Aid Justice Center's Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program, and LAJC is also a member of RTAP. Jasmine Leeward. I uh, do strategic communications with New Virginia Majority, and I support communications with uh, RTAP as well. Well, welcome to the show. Yes. It's nice to have you here since we here. Um, happen to love transparency and accountability. <laughs> <laughs> 2019, 2018, 2017 buzzword. I know, it just keeps still working on it over and over. You guys want to kind of start talking about what you guys have been doing, how you started, what your most recent projects have been? Sure, I can uh, start. Back in 2016, Mohammed, who's an organizer with New Virginia Majority, started knocking doors in Southside, trying to just speak with the community and hear kind of what issues that they were most concerned with. And and policing came up, over-policing, and and the ways in which the communities felt surveilled. Um, So from that, there were a host of community meetings kind of discussing what a campaign would look like, and folks decided to work on a civilian review board. And so after that, there was a lot of uh, conversations and and folks saw the need for there to be more data to kind of, you know, just really show and and show the, the, get the numbers and the proof that, you know, certain communities were being over-policed in the area Mm -hmm. and why. And so from there, we've been, we we started connecting with uh, Southerners on New Ground, uh, Dr. Costin and Legal Aid Justice Center to uh, start working on trying to figure out how we can obtain more data Mm -hmm. um, and work 
towards that transparency process. And reporting. Okay. Yeah. So one of the, as Legal Aid Justice Center came on in this partnership, and it was actually Southerners on New Ground, which is an LGBTQ uh, liberation organization that focuses on queer folks that are people of color, low-income folks in the South, had independently through their membership base, also decided to do a civilian oversight campaign for a CRB in Richmond. Okay. So, the, you know, New Virginia Majority came together with Song and then kind of as technical assistance, I would say, like Dr. Costin and LAJC stepped in to see how we could support those asks. And as Jasmine was describing, you know, there were these really powerful town halls where community members shared their experiences, right? Their, their own truth, their own data about what policing looks like in Richmond and has mm-hmm. looked like historically. And the Richmond Police Department, um, Chief Durham at the time was fairly dismissive of a lot of those individuals mm-hmm. um, in a number of ways, you know, that, that that's history, you know, there's a new sheriff in town that mm. was years ago. We don't do that anymore. Doesn't exist. Um, it was a bad apple. Like if you had that experience, it was one person who was behaving improperly. And if you had used the complaint process, that person would have d- been disciplined mm. and it would have been taken care of. Did you use the complaint process? And if that person didn't, kind of chastising them for that. So one of the things that we as uh, a legal organization were able to step in and provide support is we starting in, I actually just pulled it up because it was so long ago, September of 2017, we started submitting Freedom of Information Act requests awesome. for use of force data, for data on civilian complaints. And it was a, it was quite the lengthy process. I believe we finally had the police chief sit down with us. It was, I think it was early 2018 that, or December of 2000, December of 2017, we started meeting with the, um, with the chief and slowly we were able to pull out some commitments to release use of force and civilian complaint data. And when we went back to the community, what we also, we, we heard from folks who were like, that's great, but also the, one of the, or two of the really big issues when we talk about what mass incarceration looks like in our communities are everyday contact. They were really saying, we want to know about stop and frisks and we want to know about traffic stops. Um, so those were the big fights that we've had recently um, and we're able to uh, get a commitment from RPD together with community support, a real petition to get this data with the fees waived for what they call pedestrian contact. Um, yeah. They say it includes, you know, air quotes on the radio, consensual <laughs> encounters yeah. with the officers <laughs> yeah. um, and traffic stop data. And that's what we're um, have been recently. We're really Dr. Costin has been digging into and analyzing. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that was really clear when we started looking at the data is that even though they provided a lot of this data saying that they were trying to be transparent and accountable. Um, There's not really a lot of transparency and accountability occurring. So they started releasing data on civilian complaints, for example, and as the chief of police at the time was criticizing citizens for not filing reports, there were reports from 2017 that were opened in January of that year and hadn't been closed by the end of the year. And so there's really little incentive to report when you know nothing's going to be done about it. There are department policy is 30 days to close a complaint, but the average complaint is takes over three months. Yeah. And, and speaking to like deterrence of reporting, also, if you go on the RPD website, I mean, I checked a few months ago, when you go to like where you report a concern, mm-hmm. they have these disclaimers that say, you know, if you basically are are, don't have papers or your citizenship status you're not a, a you're not here legally it reads like a threat and also if you have like a a warrant out for your arrest yeah report it, something and exactly lock you up. exactly Walk which is really concerning thing. so their website says that they regularly investigate all people <clears throat> associated with the complaint process or something to that effect mm-hmm. but if you're concerned about being investigated for any reason then you're, you're not, not gonna, gonna file it. a no, you're not gonna a complete file deterrent. a complaint yeah 
Yeah. And it's also in English, which I thought was... Uh, just in English. It, only in English. So, and even though their official department policy says that they do accept anonymous complaints, it requires every single field on the website to be filled. So, to be filled. So you could call anonymously, I suppose, mm-hmm. but their processes don't really line up with what their policies say. Yeah. So who's to say when you call that even gets entered into the system of never ending unsolved complaints? Right. And just to circle back to the original demand <clears throat> that Jasmine mentioned, I think you know, we really do feel strongly, everyone around this table, about transparency and accountability. But the accountability piece is really important to us, too. And it's we really don't want to lose that in the fact that we're in a stage right now where a lot of what we can offer the community is trying to crack open that black box of policing and say, what is what does policing look like in our community? But the reason for that is to start to have a conversation about what the problems are and what tools the community can have um, to take control over those and really talk about what safety would look like in our community, what actual healthy communities, sustainable communities would look like. So we always have in mind that core goal that brought us together of civilian oversight of the of the police and making change it's not just data for openness sake it's a, there's a purpose behind it mm-hmm. so we want change right so for example with the complaint data it's clear that the police aren't doing an adequate job of policing themselves mm-hmm. um, they're letting these complaints go they're not re- resolving them and they're not being back in contact with the community even if they have been resolved so we really think that a sil- civilian oversight commission would help that process along and be able to act as mediator mm-hmm. between the community and the police department. How's the reaction been to that suggestion? Well, I feel like um, back when we were having those town halls, there was just a lot of uh, lip service, if you will, saying that, you know, well, if we needed it, then maybe we would ins- we would look into it, but we don't see a real need for it. The Virginia way. Okay. Uh, of course. Uh, so again, like, this is this has always been a push, like like um, Kim was saying, for for that accountability part of it, and just really to educate folks on the numbers and, and what that policing looks like. Um, and so the civilian review board we've gotten when we we were circulating a petition, um, and I believe it had over like seven hundred signatures. Mm-hmm. I'll need to double check that, but um, it, there was widespread uh, support. And from the community for uh, a body to be able to uh, police the police. And one of the, I remember one of Chief Durham's regular responses because we, um, Mohammed, the organizer that Jasmine mentioned, um, he always has a hard ask and he would say at these town halls, <laughs> do you or do you not support civilian oversight for the police department? And Chief Durham would say, if you show me that there's a need a for need. that, then we'll have a conversation and I don't see you showing me a need for it. Mm. And we've already, we've always taken the position that a core feature of democracy is that the people exactly. should have control and oversight over all of our institutions. So at you know, regardless of what the data shows us, we believe the community should have access to robust access to data about what policing looks like in our communities and the ability to oversee one of the functions of government. But leaving aside that position, we now have data that shows as as um, Dr. Costum is describing that that's the complaint process is it's not working for people. Yeah. We already knew that. I mean, and again, we really want to lift up that the community members are their own source of truth. Right. right. This policing data is self-reported, and we're not going to sit here and say that that data is more authentic or valuable than what people have been telling us for years mm-hmm. when they were knocking doors in Southside. So we heard from people that I didn't file a complaint because I knew that I wasn't going to hear back and it wasn't going to be a meaningful response. Mm-hmm. So we already knew that that process was broken, but now we have your own data 
your own self-reported data showing us that that process is not working for people. So let's talk about some of that data, if you don't mind. There's some reporting that's been done, you know, from Richmond Police Department on basic overall uh, data for Richmond. And we've got, they reported 98% of police reports for curfew violations are black people. Uh, 90% of traffic stops for warrant violations are black people. 87% of driving without a valid driver's license, black people. 78% of trespassing, black people. 76% of disorderly conduct. You want to guess? Is it black people? How'd you know? 71% of suspicious persons. There it is again. I'm actually surprised that number's not higher, to be honest. I've had several uh, assumptions of that myself. Just look at next door. (laughs) 66% of suspicious activities. Black people. Right. Yet only 48% of Richmond is black. (laughs) So let's talk about some of that complaint data that you've been coming up with? So that data actually comes from police officers' field interview reports. Okay. Essentially, when an officer is out in the field and they see something suspicious, they plan on stopping and talking to a pedestrian, they have some kind of encounter with um, someone on the street, the officer has the option to fill out what's called a field interview card. Right. Now, the field interview cards are also discretionary. Officers are not required to fill those out. Hmm. Okay. So what you're seeing here is the discretionary reports reveal a pretty large racial bias mm-hmm. that, that people are being stopped for curfew violations, for truancy, for all these different categories. The ones that they're choosing to fill out. Right, the ones that they're choosing to fill out. And so I do think that this idea that these are the ones that officers choose to fill out is important though. These are the ones that officers think are noteworthy, maybe think they might pursue further. So this is the officer's own personal perception that this is noteworthy. And so if officers think it's noteworthy when black people are doing things wrong, but not finding it noteworthy when white people are doing things that are wrong, Mm -hmm. that's also important for us to know. So even you know, the the police say, well, this is discretionary. It doesn't tell us the whole picture. But it does It does give tell us, us a lot. It does tell us a lot. It paints a picture of something very particular, which is that officers tend to be more suspicious mm-hmm. of black people in Richmond. And just to, and I really want to highlight that this is not arrest data, right? So this is not right. people that were even alleged to have committed a crime, right? And we, the you know, field interviews is what the reports are titled. Um, Mm -hmm. But the broader data set we received was for pedestrian contact. And as I mentioned earlier, some of that is styled as consensual contact. I feel like I've started to expect the pushback. Like, well, if they're in the community, what are they supposed to do? Like not stop the person who is, you know, if they're if they're there and the crime is happening. But some of this, I think the the curfew. So the curfew one is a great one to look at because there are so many bright lines where like they stopped young black men who were over 18 who looked like they perhaps could have been under 18 at, at like at a ratio that's astronomically higher than they were stopping young white men who may have been under 18 and to Liz's point too about who they are conceptualizing as possibly you know rising to the level of like criminality that they'd want to track and surveil right we have as young as a five-year-old black girl with a field interview card filled out about her what? A huh? not, they had black children, nine nine years old and five years old. Are those the yes. two field interview cards? I wish y'all could see my face. And right what now. and what was the what was the alleged reason that they were that they encountered the police? This was tagged as a curfew violation, <laughs> right? But they were probably out with a parent, God. or if they were not out with a parent, then it shouldn't have been tagged as a curfew violation. This is something that you should be 
investigating is where do they belong right potential neglect or a lost child or a kidnapped child sure and so the the fact that this would then be categorized as a curfew violation as if the child the five-year-old child had done something wrong wrong is highly problematic attaching criminality to a five-year-old yeah and and uh Back to to y'all's point about really the disproportionate numbers, I think it's also important to talk about over-concentration of policing too, right? Yes. So like when, I, when I'm in the East End and when I'm in South Side, I sometimes like do a little, uh, what is it, like a punch buggy game with, with my friends. Mm-hmm. Like how many cops do you think we'll see before we get to our destination? You can do it in North Side too. It, yes. yes. Welcome to Highland Park. Yep. And, and when I'm in the West End, when I'm in Glen Allen, you know, I can go for miles and miles without seeing police parked and and tucked it away in a corner you can do punch buggy with ladies running down the sidewalk with their kids yes yeah exactly and so you know it's it's really when we're looking at this data the number of cops that are concentrated in black communities Mm -hmm. are are astronomically higher um than than other communities as well and when you're there when you just have that presence there all you have to do is surveil and wait and look and watch for Mm -hmm. something to go wrong that you assume exactly exactly and that that hyper visibility is is clearly apparent in this data and that's one of the other pieces that so we have demographic data as well as geographic data for every one of these stops we have a specific geolocation that we're actually working on mapping and being able to make be able to share with the community more robust descriptions of what Jasmine was just describing and again mm-hmm. that people know like you said around the table we we experience that right but to be able to layer on this kind of um, quote-unquote objective scaffolding to be like there it is and, and their visual. own numbers mm-hmm. right so when we look at the traffic stop data for example we've mapped that and we've mapped hot spots where more stops occur where stops occur disproportionately more often than you would expect them mm-hmm. and but if you do a heat map it's red in the areas where there's a lot of activity and it's blue in the areas where there's less activity those are cold spots, right? Okay. And the entire West End is blue. Of course. There's of course. like nothing going on there. But then you start looking at the East End and the South Side and some spots up in North Side as well. And it's red. It's bright red. I mean, this really just is a graphic representation of the stories that we hear all the time. But the police and our policymakers and our politicians, they want the numbers. They want the data. Those are what is important to them. And they come back and they say, people's stories aren't data. I'm a social scientist. I know that's not true. People's stories are absolutely data. But our politicians and policymakers don't seem to understand that. And there's a lot of talk around the U.S. Census data being used in that process. Do you guys want to talk about that? So one of the things that we have done um, with the census data is to actually overlay it on top of the traffic hotspot data. And so one of the things we found, in addition to it being concentrated in those particular neighborhoods that I mentioned already, um, it's also concentrated along lines where gentrification is occurring. So when we see primarily white communities butting up against primarily black or primarily Hispanic communities, you see hotspots popping up right along those borders. We think that one of the reasons that this is happening is because police are enforcing essentially racialized borders um, in our neighborhoods. And I think this is another example where we've all experienced that I I am a white person and I previously lived in near Battery Park. Mm -hmm. And absolutely that the lines of that neighborhood were policed incredibly heavily. Again, like this data, it's not in many ways, it it's not surprising, right? It's confirming a reality that we all live. Um, and it's really, we're 
we just hope that this data can buttress and amplify the community members that are already standing up and speaking this truth and have been mm-hmm. for years. Let's talk about some of the difference between the police contact that were pedestrian versus traffic stops um, and what those percentages look like. Some of the numbers, there's an, there's an interesting switch, I think, that was reported by VCU police that talks about the traffic stops that they made were kind of different from some of the data we just talked about. Maybe why? The Richmond Police Department actually hasn't gotten us their full set of data on traffic stops. Right now, we only have the geolocation of those stops. Okay. Um, They were supposed to attach the race of the drivers, the demographic information of the drivers, and that actually didn't happen in the data release. So we currently have a request for them to supplement that data with the additional fields that they had agreed to in our original conversations. So we've been able to do the mapping we described earlier using census data to say we know the demographic graphics of people who live in this neighborhood and can say that this number of stops occurred in that neighborhood, which obviously very likely will have a racially disparate impact. But we don't have the actual demographic. And and they actually, they have said based on their data capture, it's only for a traffic stop that leads to an arrest that they can give Hmm. us the demographic data. And if it's all right with you, I would love to... um, bring in an event that we're having on this Wednesday. Um, So we, the Richmond Police Department actually recently had out a request for a proposal for a new records management system. So they, a software service, they had said, we're looking for a contractor to um, revamp our entire data system. And part of that uh, request for proposals included a public facing portal where civilians would be able to go access certain information about policing. Mm -hmm. We became very interested in this. We'd been in conversation with the mayor trying to get leverage some of his pressure to get us this initial data Mm -hmm. and asked him for a commitment that you need to talk to the community about what this record management system should look like and what it should not look like. Okay. Um, We know what we want to be able to act, what we want you to capture and be able to access as the public and what kind of surveillance technology and predictive policing and things we do not want in Richmond because we we know what that does. We have, we know that the RFP has closed. They've signed a contract um, with, with Soma Global. We, but they have not had any kind of community engagement. Yeah, they've not followed through on that. So we are hosting our own forum. (laughs) All right. There you go. This Wednesday, uh, April 3rd, from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at the Richmond Public Library, the main branch on um, 101 East Franklin Street. And we would love people to come out and tell us. And what we were just describing, I think, is a perfect example of flawed data capture right now. We should know, why aren't we capturing the like racial and ethnic and gender and age information for everyone in a traffic stop so we know how many people that if you're overwhelming contact exactly Mm -hmm. like the capturing the whole range of contact and there were a number of things they told us they couldn't tell us like for example whose vehicle did they search when they stopped them so what if they search half of the black folks they pull over they search their vehicle and don't find anything so there's no arrest and there's no there's no record there's no record of the fact that you disproportionately searched this massive number of folks so really being able to push on what kind of robust data we want um and we would love again we really think the community is the source of the wisdom on this. And we want to continue that town hall format and have folks come out, give us that information so we can turn around and pressure the city to um, be responsive as Mayor Stoney promised to be to the community's priorities for that. Have you asked why, I I know one question I have, for them to collect so much data for pedestrian, uh, even with a consensual police encounter on foot, they collect so much data for that. Why don't they collect the same amount of data for traffic stops because it's still contact outside of an arrest being made? What is their response to that if they've given you one? 
So we haven't specifically asked that question,、um, so they haven't responded.、Okay. I can tell you, having looked at the field interview reports and some of the items that they have in that, officers do sometimes fill out field interview reports when they make traffic stops. So, for example, traffic stops for warrant violations—that's one of the categories in there. Okay. You would only know that there was a warrant violation after the stop occurred. So there's some retroactive adding of some of those fields. Got it. Because unless. Police are just assuming that someone has a warrant out, which、uh. would be even more problematic.、Uh. There is some information about potential traffic stops in the field interview data, but it's just not consistent. Again, it's not consistent. These are all discretionary,、mm-hmm. and it could be that officers who are pulling people over assume that they're going to be writing a ticket, and so don't find it important to. to do it. To do those things, but this is another place where we would really like to see more consistency from the Richmond Police Department. Why are so many of your policies and procedures discretionary? Field interview reports is one thing, right? Use of force data—that's another place where we've、mm-hmm. encountered a lot of discretionary reporting because officers don't have to report if they use force that's quote within departmental guidelines. Right. I want to know every time an officer put their hands on a citizen. I think that this is a problem throughout most of the data that we have gotten from the Richmond Police Department. And so, one of the things that we really want to do is engage the community at this forum around what they want to see.、Mm-hmm. What data do you want captured? What data do you want to be able to? Look at about your police department.、Mm-hmm. All of it. <laughs> all of it. Answers all of it. All of it is much more than what they're collecting because we can all have our own theories. But it's very convenient that you know these things are discretionary and certain pieces of data are not collected because. Then we can't hold you accountable of biases and、uh, well for anything. Just the way, yeah, just the way that people, you know, want some a pattern could be easily picked up if an officer was required to fill out this、uh, field card for every person that he came in contact with, not just you know the person who was arrested or a person that he saw on foot. Um, and then maybe you'd catch a pattern that would、um, alert you to an officer who has, you know, a predisposition to,、um, you know, yell threats at middle schoolers walking to their after-school program. Well, it just seems like they're set up to cover bias, like to cover it up. At every turn. Well, and you also have an overwhelming. At the time, the the chief at the time openly said he didn't believe that you know we had racial biases in policing in America. You were at that meeting, weren't you, Doctor? Said、Kirsten? that as a black yeah,、so、man. Yes, I was. I was at that meeting. Not only did he say that there were no racial biases in policing in Richmond, but there are no racial biases in policing in the United in the United States. States yeah. yeah, I mean, then that's... and the whales from the crowd. Mm-hmm. In that video, were well, unreal. Well, because it's objectively untrue.、Right. Even our own Department of Justice has said that there are problems in numerous police departments across the United States with racial bias in policing.、Mm-hmm. Um, it flies in the face of pretty much all of the social science data we have. Yes, I personally find it disturbing that we would have a chief of police that has no regard for. Research and evidence.、Mm-hmm. Well, and that obviously too will trickle down to his officers.、Yeah. Right. And to your point about it seeming like the data is designed to obscure bias. Again, to emphasize, we really need as a community. It's so important for us to come together and put political pressure on the city to both capture this data and release it because they're not required to under state law capture this data and like and in the. Ver- Our public records law, the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, has incredibly broad 
what are called discretionary exemptions, where the department can decide to release the data, but they don't have to. So when I, as an attorney, on behalf of the community, send a letter requesting information on when officers use force, right. they can just tell me no. no. Or if I yeah. want to a civilian complaint data, they can just say no. Mm. So it's incredibly important for, as the community has been for the last several years, to keep coming together and saying that like we are not going to let officials make the decision to, one, not capture this data, or two, capture it and whenever it's convenient, put a black box over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's unacceptable. It needs to be reported. You know, like when when we're talking about these numbers, they they are terrifying, right? And what is the full number of, of uh, field interview reports? It was like I think it's close to three thousand. Three thousand, and and wow. that that was over uh, just a year span of time, right? So this is the image we're looking at, and it's like when I saw the data, what I asked myself was what what does this impact look like in people's lives, right? When, when mm. folks are over policed and and pushed out of their communities, it's it's like I remember hearing from one guy um, who was really trying to get back on his feet after uh, being incarcerated, and he had 35 probation violations because the same police officer would harass him on the Watching street him. because yep. he wasn't allowed in public housing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a really complex system that really pushes black folks out of their communities um, and, and feeds the system of, of mass incarceration. And um, I think really kind of like showing what that, the, what this, what these numbers mean in that way in the lives of, of folks who are living here is, is really what should like encourage folks to really want learn, the data. Exactly. Learn um, about like the work that's going on to make this data accessible. Right. And Jasmine, I actually misspoke. There were 30,000 cards. And oh. I left a, a zero off. 30,000 in a year and nine months. Um, and so mm. that actually means that one in six black people in Richmond, um, given the, the number of cards and the proportion of data, one in six black people in Richmond was stopped during that time period. Mm. And remember that those are discretionary yeah, those are just, I was going to say because I, I was right. three of them. So. Right. Those, the, <laughs> one in six were what was reported. Right. There could definitely be more. Definitely yeah. more. more. Gosh. So before we all burst into tears at the ridiculousness of all of this, what what's the overall ask that you guys, you've said it a couple of times, but, you know, just so that people get this, what's the overall ask that you guys want from the community in terms of engagement, in terms of what they can do? to help the effort and how they can connect with you? Well, I guess first the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Facebook page is where you can get connected in and get some more information. Uh, Muhammad has uh, community meetings uh, pretty much monthly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, t discussing the, the campaign and, and planning with folks. So I guess reaching out to uh, the Facebook page would be the best way to get in contact with folks. Mm -hmm. um, and showing up, we'd love to see folks out on, on Wednesday at the uh, the main library to hear more and, and visualize the data that we've gotten so far. Yeah, so in Radio Land, that'll be today. Oh, cool. yes, Radio cool. Land. Yep, in Radio Land, that'll be today. So later later this evening at 5.30 um, to 7 at the uh, main branch, Richmond Public Library on Franklin Street. In and the annex, right, in the, the lower level. And what I would say to anyone who's coming out to the event is we want people to really bring what they want 
to hold police officers accountable for in their communities and also what their hopes for the future of policing in Richmond looks like. Mm. Um, because if we know those things, then we can help get data that will help support that future, yeah. right? If we know what items people want to hold the police accountable to, if we can track those, we can look at change over time. We can see if the police are getting better or if the police are getting worse, as long as we have access to data to do that. Um, but we really want to know what the community wants in order to make those requests happen. To lift this up one more time, that we really value community members also as a critical source of data. Mm -hmm. We really don't want people to think that this is about um, not hearing their experiences as valid or weighty enough. Um, when people come and share stories with us, that is the origin of this campaign. That is the seed that all of this work grew from. So to um, Dr. Costin's point, we want people to come share anything they're comfortable sharing with us, what, yeah. whether that's their histor the problems they've historically experienced with policing, what they really think um, true safety and uh, a loving community would look like in Richmond. And that's what we want our work to be, to be guided by, right? Our work is guided by the community. This data is just a tool for us to support that core mission. And reach to it. All right. Well, we thank you guys for joining us. Thank um, you for sharing this really valuable information with all yes. of us and with the community. Yes. Because this is the part, this is the vital, this is the action part that uh, the community needs. So often we talk about the problems that we face in Richmond. And there's a whole lot of talking and no solutions being talked about. So this is actually a solution-based um, source that the community can use as a catalyst to get the things done that they want um, and take back control of their community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, you having, for us. having us. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and if you want to come back again, just let us know. Yep. <laughs> Me when the new data comes out. The police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Oh, that is because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe to toe in the middle of a cell. We come with me because I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the product. No, Mr. Officer, we're not doing anything. We're just hanging out and listening to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Showing out for the white cop. And so we're on to part two of today's show. We've got um, some other groups that are going to come in and talk about the VCU perspective of policing that we experience. We'll say that in Richmond. Uh, if you guys don't mind introducing yourself and your organization that you're representing. Yeah, so I'm Nathan Land from Amnesty International at VCU. I'm Anonymous, and I'm from Amnesty International at VCU as well. Uh, I'm Nick Da Silva, and I'm the head chair of uh, the Young Democratic Socialists of America at VCU. Appreciate you guys coming in and talk with us. First half of our show, we talked about RPD and some of the stats pertaining to policing. We want you guys to just kind of expand this to 
VCU and what some of those, what your demographics are and what the policing looks like. You can talk about the recent expansion. We want to hear it all. I mean, in terms of demographics, I I was just looking at it earlier, and this is from data that VCU Police Department has released. Uh, VCU has a approximately 18.5% black student body in terms of the percentage of the overall university. But in terms of narcotics arrests, And I wanted to put this in context. I was looking through the arrest records earlier for, I guess, March and February, January. Narcotics, like especially liquor law violations, marijuana, those are the two things that constitute like by and by and large, like the huge majority of their arrests or interactions at VCU. For narcotics arrests, it is 48.7% black individuals that are arrested on those charges. On an 18% population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 18.5% VCU population and 48% in Richmond. But if these uh, officers are supposed to be interacting with students, and and you can kind of look through, they don't like delineate specifically uh, in their overall data, but if you go through their arrest records, it is like largely speaking, students, though they do have a lot of interaction with non-students as well. Okay. And the data that that you're referring to is specifically talking about undergraduate students, so... Yeah. And the next part I wanted to say is other than DUI and narcotics arrests, all other arrests uh, for VCUPD are 52.6%. You know, they're arresting black people, black students. And then for 2018 specifically for total arrests, not categorizing at all, 51.8% of those arrests were black people at VCU. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to, I guess, lead off with those statistics. I think they paint a pretty good picture of the situation as it is. Yes, that's an overwhelming disparity. Oh, and one last thing. It is a small sample, but 75% of the use of force were towards black individuals. And do we know um, the percentage of VCUPD black members? Isn't it like less than 50%? Um... Yeah, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I do remember it was like 66 or 68% white VCU officers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do remember um, during the city council meeting, like when they were voting on the expansion, like Councilman Jones mentioned that like VCU PD like didn't even match up to like the student population demographics. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. that that matters. Not that that like means yeah. that we need more police. But... Exactly. But oh, you're speaking on that that sneaky sneak vote that they tried to do. Yep. Yeah. Where they tried to sneak it through on consent mm-hmm. yep. yes. out of nowhere with Carrie, and they were talking about it. Uh, so VCU PD uh, decided to expand their jurisdiction into um, historically black neighborhoods such as Jackson Ward and Shaco Bottom. And so that was one point that was brought up, the fact that the demographics of their own police force didn't even match the demographics of Richmond locals. Um, We have a very large black population here in Richmond, and it's not reflected in any of our, I want to say like, governmental police you know any of that is represented in high positions even our council our city council doesn't really look reflective of Richmond the things that they say the things that they allow through is especially showing of how non-representative they are of this population that was that was something that struck me the most when I mean when we went to 
speak in front of city council. In terms of the people that spoke against the VCU PD expansion, it was the VCU PD constituency. You know, it was, it was like a dozen so odd students saying, all my friends have experienced this bias. I have seen this bias. We are concerned about this being inflicted upon the community. One was, I saw this bias on my way to council that's, today. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, I was walking to, to <laughs> city council, literally, and I was on the way there. And there was a VCU police officer sitting uh, by the student commons, which is one of the central places, yeah. lights on, just flashing. I, I, so I went up to him. I was like, okay, I'm going to use this later. So I go up to him and I ask, why are you sitting here? And they said, dispatch wants us to sit in places with large amounts of people and just keep our lights on. Wow. And he was there for hours. Conducting like, surveillance. Yeah. And so I brought that up. Is this the behavior that you want in the community? Right. Do you want that fear and that like presence there always in the community? Yeah, as well? It's already there mm -hmm. in larger, predominantly black, right. uh, you know, communities around Richmond, that overbearance of police is already present. And I would like to remind our listeners to this particular city council uh, meeting where this passed, there was a whopping three citizens, all non-VCU students, who spoke for this expansion. And I think from what I also recall, some of the people that were speaking for the expansion was based on their experience with the officers um, as community members in Carver. Other conversations I've had with people, it also sounds like that might be related to one officer uh, that had done a very good job in that area as a supervisor. And I think what really struck me in that whole meeting was this dichotomy of the community and then also VCU, where this is a jurisdiction where VCU students have had this experience. And we can look in this data and we can see that, you know, maybe it doesn't look as horrific, however you want to quantify or qualify this, of saying like, well, when we see RPD data, that's 90% or 80% yeah. at face value. So we're doing a better job. Right. And at the same time, we have people that are speaking out and are trying to have this conversation. But in that same meeting, you also have council people that are diminishing their voices as renters. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I forgot that was that meeting until that moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, that was the, the infamous Hispanic speakers oh incident. Hispanic speaking. Oh, yeah. so... And then they went into recess. Right. And then came back out and sneaky sneaked the vote. Yep, VCUPD expands. Yes, and also that expansion includes a triple coverage area. Yeah, where capital. it's triple triple police with capital police RPD and now VCU. So you just well, you feel absolutely covered in yeah, police officers. Just, like you're wearing them. It keeps you in this constant like you're being watched, Big Brother kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And it also brings up, because with VCUPD, they'll stop homeless people sitting on benches or just regular Richmond locals sitting on benches enjoying. There's a bench outside a dorm, and they're just sitting there, and they're just enjoying the weather. Sitting you know, while black. Yes, and they'll approach them, and they'll ask them for their ID and all this stuff to try to identify them as being able to be on VCU's campus. And it creates this whole, separation you have to identify who is who belongs on vcu campus and who doesn't mm -hmm. and but vcu campus is pretty much all of richmond exactly <laughs> and we have we have really like soaked into it and someone described it to me as an octopus like we're just reaching further and further uh -huh. with all these little legs it just 
it creates it. It's hard for Richmond locals to be on in spaces that were like has been theirs for so long. I think it it puts pressure on students of color, specifically Black students as well, because what does a VCU student look like? Yeah. And how often does that mean that it's a Black person that it doesn't look like? Yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What I'm trying mm-hmm. to say? Yes, because you've had several uh, VCU students step up and say, "I'm profiled on campus because Caitlin Cherry. I'm stopped. Yeah, I'm stopped because I don't look like." Like what the police, VCU police, thinks a VCU student should look like. Right, right. And it puts black VCU students in a tough space to where it's like that difference of what a VCU student is and what a Richmond local is and how you're exceptional if you're a VCU student. But what are you as a Richmond local? You know, it just creates this weird dichotomy um, that further like segregates this city. Something I actually saw a little bit earlier um, right at Monroe Park is a uh, VCU police noise detection Mm. van. Mm -hmm. It is a fully wrapped van and on the back of it, it says warning noise detection in process, VCU police. And on the side of it, it's this person like screaming with these like old flip phones (laughs) and has a no noise sign and says in an emergency dial 911. And on the front of it, on the hood, it actually says uh, respect thy neighbor and has a citation of Virginia code. For a noise violation. Right. To me, it just sounds like spy van. Exactly. Let's talk talk about how VCU PD regularly parks its police van Vans, vans that you, that are have you know no windows on the side, no windows on the back. These are vans where it just says VCU police on the side. They park them next to the library. They park them just around campus, uh-huh. as if at any moment they need to swoop in and arrest a bunch of VCU students and pack them into a van. The van like, there, hoodlums. It's just very scary. And if you think about how even just like how ICE has expanded and all that stuff, what could that look like to an immigrant student? Like. You know, it's just... It just creates that fear, like you're always being watched. Constant state That's what I wanted attention. to ask is like, what is it like speaking out or filing complaints with VCU police? If anybody has any experiences with that? Well, I know Liz Costum was just in here, so they'll probably fill you in and tell you that like when it comes to reporting to the police, most people don't even feel comfortable doing that because right. of like all the things that police do to these groups of people. That, yes, that's Yeah, that's so, true. Historically, that's true. Um, you've got data that shows a certain demographic is more likely to report to police. Mm-hmm. Um, and that demographic usually does not match the same dif- demographic that is being targeted by police. So that makes sense. You know, if I already feel intimidated by you, you know, profiled by you, criminalized by your surveillance, by your presence, by your aggressive policing mm-hmm. in my space. Brightly wrapped van parked you know strategically yeah I don't feel comfortable I I mean at that point and that's something that's commonly been done just not in uh, VCU or school police but also in you know our police uh, departments in Richmond but other community policing I don't feel comfortable reporting and a lot of people will not uh, feel comfortable reporting if even if something is happening to them Mm -hmm. they may not call the police because me calling the police may get me killed if I'm the wrong color. So, And wasn't there a percentage about the uh, unfounded number? So yes, that's actually what I was going to ask yeah. next. Was So I've pulled up the 2018 Bias-Based Policing Annual Review from VCU. And I was wondering if any of y'all fine folks would like to speak on the complaints of bias that they have up here and the results that they've provided for us. I can, I mean... I've seen the numbers. 
it the, it, the lack of yeah i think that's maybe a better uh so i looked at the summary they provided since okay. 2014 it showed like each year they have uh, close to a dozen you know like reports of bias related complaints and every year they find they do their own whatever investigation and they find zero percent of those complaints are founded zero percent of those complaints how is that possible that is extremely unrealistic in the former capital of the confederacy mm -hmm. <laughs> extremely okay. unrealistic there are 99 VCU police officers and not one of them apparently since 2014 not one of them has enforced bias or experienced or used or expressed apparently that is what they're saying well gosh I guess we don't even need to be here today right they're so squeaky clean and I guess that would just erase all of the black and brown students who have complained thank, thank you and thank you it even goes past just the police force. There's bias within VCU as a whole, within all of the systems within VCU. So how could it not be within the VCU PD? Uh, students regularly complain in classrooms about professors mm. who are teaching these classes. So you cannot tell me it wouldn't be the same in VCU PD. Yeah, what that does, that what that report does is delegitimize the voices of black students who say openly, I am being profiled and I am being targeted. And you're definitely using bias to assume that I'm doing something that I'm not. And even if you think about who is more over police, like based on neighborhood and how VCU students are spread out within neighborhoods, uh, you have more white uh, students in the fan and, and Oregon Hill, and you have more your black and non-black people of color students in Carver area, Jackson Ward area. And those areas are extremely over police mm -hmm. compared to Oregon Hill and um, the fan, which obviously connects with who lives in Richmond, even as non-VCU locals and all right. that stuff. It kind of just shows you who is targeted more even along those lines. So mm -hmm. it's clear that there is some sort of bias. Well, yes. Also, um, I've pulled up the use of force data that they've provided. Under black citizens involved in use of force incidents with the VCUPD, it is 75%. That's staggering. Take a moment, listeners, and let that sink in. 75% of their use of force incidents are black students or black individuals, Richmonders, that are around campus. But VCU is so diverse. VCU is so equitable. Zero percent bias. Zero percent bias. You cannot yes. tell me that that is an accurate Yet lethal number. force is often used against African Americans. Well, maybe maybe they're they're trying to counter some of that data with their traffic summonsing. Mm. <laughs> and, and I mean, even that speaks to a demographic um, because, you know, we don't have any data of these reports if they're students, if they're non-students. But you've got traffic summonses for 2018, 45.3% white and 43.8% black. So you're pulling about at the same rate. But then you've got DUI arrests, white, 72% percent black is 27 percent why do you think though yeah. that they're having more dui arrest for white individuals that are being pulled over in these traffic summonses and you've got 27 percent black by vcu police i mean I, who's I, driving a car and who's not yeah that's what i was gonna say and i also think about because there's like this thing at VCU when it comes to like parties and all that stuff. They always say black students 
their parties are hush hush. Mm-hmm. You don't tell anybody. Like you gotta know somebody to know how to get into Where those things because mm-hmm. they're afraid of getting shut down quicker or sooner. And with white parties, it's not specifically white frat parties. It's less of a chance of them getting completely shut down. And oh, told. they're super blatant spilling out into the street. Yes. Yeah. I mean, come on. Friday nights rolling through campus. And forget so, about it. So I feel like that has a thing where, like, there's this sort of, as a black student working within a PWI, there's this understanding that you have to move a certain way compared to your white your fellow white students, mm-hmm. um, even when it comes to enjoying having fun as a black student, and like congregating as black students in blackness, like there's a certain hush hush about that in order to maintain to a, to be able to have fun for longer periods of time. I don't, and I feel like that's that's more of like my blackness speaking towards that rather than maybe some statistical data or whatever but I feel like those experience are, experiences are extremely important when we're st- discussing statistics. I, no, absolutely. I think like even the statistics I think they validate everything that you're saying too mm-hmm. and you know I think that that's what really frustrated me about city council in this whole debate is you have students that have real life experiences mm-hmm. that are standing in front of you. I appreciate the fact that they took it off of the consent agenda so at least it was the regular agenda where everybody had a chance to speak which was slick as hell anyway but to automatically assume that just because there's more officers in an area means and necessitates that there's going to be a more a less crime outcome and if you look at what vcu was trying to do of like why they were expanding it it just seemed like well it's just easier for us because it's makes it easy for us to look we have to cross this area anyway it makes sense let me just talk here for a sec about my the specific thing I wanted to talk about, I make it an effort, I have for a while now, to go to the Board of Visitors meetings for our university. Mm-hmm. The, that's the governing board for VCU. They make all the, you know, they're like the above the president, they make all the the end decisions. A couple months ago, I went to a Board of Visitors meeting where one of the members specifically said, we want to make this area more attractive to young professionals. We want to, and you know, that's just an example of the more blatant side of it. Going to these board of visitors meetings, I have the chance to see what their plan is for VCU, plan for Richmond as well. Right. And they call it the VCU master plan. Very, yeah, I know. Um, You do love a master plan. I was going to say like the Richmond colonization plan. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. The thing is about this VCU police expansion, they, the, expressed reason for it was we want it to be easier for VCU police to be able to work with the Richmond police and be able to handle things and not be, you know, bound by the the whatever jurisdiction they're in now. Those pesky boundaries. Right? Mm. Those pesky boundaries that were set up a while ago when it was much smaller. You look at what VCU is trying to do. You look at how they're trying to continually buy more property. We talk about mansion. You talk about, what was that place on Broad? So they they canceled or... Yeah, canceled the Jamaica House lease. Um, They told them they had a few months to get out. And they're moving downtown, but it's only a matter of time before they kick them out from downtown as well because those tentacles, they keep spreading. 
Right. And so, like you said, the tentacles keep spreading. And so that necessitates there are people that live there. And there are a certain kind of person that VCU, frankly, doesn't want on their campus. And that's just how it is. And it's even reflected in the new Pulse bus that we have um, that has taken stops out of black neighborhoods um, and made it difficult for them to get to work, made it difficult, even more difficult, because we live in a food desert, for them to get groceries and fresh food. So... They're basically pushing black people into this one corner of Richmond and they're leaving them without access to food, without access to jobs, health care, all these different things and kind of just leaving them out there to die, which is kind of sad and horrific if you think about it long enough. Like, and, and giving white people a fast track bus from the West stops End. stops at a brewery but doesn't stop at the Kroger. Yeah, that goes all the way to... Right all of the breweries Mm -hmm. so i guess i have like kind of a closing question for you guys as we wrap up as vcu students why do you all care about what happens um, and the impact that vcu has on the richmond community i guess uh, for me it stems from my love of black people and blackness i was raised in bridgeport connecticut which is an extremely impoverished um, city of uh, connecticut where like it's on the inside and it's just black and brown people just live in trying to survive and so a lot of the things that i experienced there i've been experiencing while living as a black student in richmond and seeing kind of how the treatment of my blackness within vcu is treated compared to um, white counterparts and so just wanting to improve the plight of black people as a whole has really pushed my passion for kind of pushing against some of the things VCU tries to instill in you as a VCU student and tries to make you proud of mm-hmm. as a VCU student. I say proud of in quotation marks. It, when you learn more and when you get to understand how VCU has come to be and how it's literally built on the on black bodies. Um, exactly. <laughs> quite literally. Literally built on black bodies. It's it's horrifying and it makes me want to do more for the people here. I guess this is important to me because, yeah, being a VCU student and just hearing constantly in emails and everywhere, like, we're so diverse and everything. <laughs> but then to see the underbelly, as Sushnosh said, like, to realize that, hey, like, while we actually have, like, the whole, like, largest campus police force in the commonwealth that's wild i'm also here because it's important to me to stand up for my black friends like over there and just like be in solidarity well also even if you come from different parts of the you know the wider world while you're here at vcu you are part of the richmond community exactly mm-hmm. period so this is your home mm-hmm. and these are your community members your I neighbors pay rent here <laughs> i <laughs> right. pay water uh. I live here. I'm a part of this community. It's my responsibility as a VCU student to stand in solidarity with Richmond locals and make sure my voice is heard for them and use my platform for them. I, I was just going to say, like like they both said, it's when you see an injustice like that, it's hard to not, I mean, you have to go out of your way to not say something. I came here to attend VCU, but I didn't fall in love with VCU. I fell in love with Richmond because that's the place. It's not, VCU isn't a place, it's an institution. It's a set of buildings, it's an administration. But Richmond is the place. I fell in love with this place and this people. And if you wanna go ahead and replace it with a bunch of young professionals, turn it into Nova 2, like, Uh that's why. It's Richmond, not VCU. I just, I I really appreciate 
all of your answers and I really appreciate the work that you do because I, I really as I sit here and you know you start to see and you learn more about Richmond history and understanding the system that a lot of things in Richmond were built on mm-hmm. you see that exact same parallel with VCU yep. and the stories start to become one and that's one thing when I, I can sit there and hear at council students that have this experience and we have data very much like we do with RPD and we can sit there and say like oh no but this will be fine and you know for as much as it feels sometimes like VCU is the octopus that is tentacling its way out like that's it also means that we all have to stand in solidarity together mm-hmm. um, so I just appreciate you guys for coming on the day and sharing the information and experiences you've all had and of course your advocacy on campus yes thank, thank you, you so much us. for all you up do the work. keep up all of that good work don't let anything get you down don't let the man get you down that's it <laughs> never that's it well as always Richmond Flint still has dirty water RPS is still not fully funded but we got a budget that says it might be though and Richmond is most certainly still racist but we're working on it talk to you next week Thank you once again for joining us for RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRARLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. If you would like to continue this discussion or start another with us, you can hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt.